Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold part of that short sentence. I'm excited this hour. It is Friday with my friend, Dr. Greg Heddington. We are going to jump right back into the book of John. In the first chapter, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. We're going to discuss uh, the first chapter of John, continue and learn a little bit about John the Baptizer. Greg, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Bill. Great to be back. Yeah, let's jump in. All right, well, welcome to the fourth lesson in our study of the Gospel of John. And this teaching is entitled John the Messenger. We've looked at the first 18 verses of this Gospel in the past weeks, and we've seen the wonder of Jesus who was in the beginning of all creation, and he invaded earth as God in human flesh and began a very different kind of existence as he was, quote, born to a humble Jewish woman in the village of Bethlehem during Jewish uh, oppression under the domination of the cruel Roman Empire. Whew, that's a long sentence. It is. Okay, today we will spend much of this time on a man who's considered the last of the Old Testament prophets and who introduced Jesus publicly to the world. And just as John will express his message, our central message for this lesson is similar as both he and we are encouraged to pass it on. Jesus is the Son of God. But before we look at the prophet John, have you ever wondered what occurred in that time period between the birth of Jesus, which is not mentioned in the Gospel of John, and the sudden public ministry of Jesus when he was introduced by his cousin, John, in John one twenty nine? If you're taking notes, Roman number one, the early life of Jesus. According to Luke chapter 3, the baptizer began to preach about A.D. 27, as the public ministry of Jesus started shortly afterwards. This means Jesus was about 30 years old, according to Luke 3.23. So what happened in those intervening 30 years after he was born in Bethlehem? The only incident recorded in the life of Jesus during this time in Scripture is a memorable visit which Jesus made to Jerusalem with his parents, according to the Luke account, when he was 12. In that account, Jesus freaks out his parents by separating from them briefly as they desperately look for him in that large city. To their astonishment, they find him in the temple engaged in eye-level discussions with the rabbis who marvel at his understanding. Now, young Jesus tells his distressed parents, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? You can check that out in Luke 2, 41. Now, after this, all that we know about Jesus until he's 30 years old is recorded in Luke 2, 52, which says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, the implication is that Jesus grew up like a normal Jewish boy, largely indistinguishable from any other children in the village of Nazareth which, by the way, was just a one-camel village of a few (laughs) hundred people in Galilee that had an ignominious reputation for its worship of other gods and its, let's say, flexibility regarding morals, 
which once caused a future apostle of Jesus to say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, that is not what anyone wants said about their hometown, but Nathaniel said it, and he was from the same province in Galilee, so he would know the reputation of his and Jesus' hometown. Now, we know that today Nazareth has improved its quality of living, but you can imagine how their chamber of commerce has been vilified by that comment from Nathaniel for the past 2,000 years. I'm guessing that no parent, by the way, Nazareth has named their boy Nathaniel since. <laughs> now, in our last lesson, we went into detail about how our Lord gave up his godly powers to become a humble servant who, incredibly, was born as a Jewish baby in Bethlehem. Like all Jewish boys, regarded and be they're devoted to their families, Jesus would have been required to memorize large portions of Scripture because this was an oral society in which most people were illiterate. So what they knew about Scripture was taught to them audibly by teachers of the law. It would also have been expected of Jesus, like every other boy, to learn his father's trade. Now, this is, I find this interesting that for the last 2,000 years of our history, Jesus' trade, as well as that of his father Joseph, has been listed as a carpenter. We've all heard this. The word carpenter is used twice in Scripture. It's in Mark 6, 3 and Matthew 13, 55. And in both cases, the Greek word for carpenter is the Greek word tecton, not to be confused, the Klingon from the old Star <laughs> Trek series, but a tecton is someone who works with wood and stone. In Israel, a tecton is able to form things with Gold, silver, iron, copper, bronze, and wood, depending on the job he was asked to do. After all, working with metal had been common for over 3,000 years, and we know the Temple of Solomon had been constructed centuries before with those materials. Besides, if you visit Israel today, you will see a much higher availability of rocks than wood. So the word carpenter in our English Bible could just as accurately have been translated stonemason. And that was not an easy vocation. Now, years ago, I was uh, I was a counselor for three summers at a Christian athletic camp in Missouri called Kanakuk. And I remember one particular lesson that one of the counselors gave to the boys as he attempted to emphasize how strong Jesus must have been to work as a carpenter, and in his mind at least, to work with wood. And I remember him saying to the boys, Boys, Jesus was tough and strong, and he must have had muscles like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, I knew the point that he was trying to make because so many paintings of Jesus in decades past have him look, well, let's admit, somewhat effeminate, sort of like a woman with a beard. But the counselor missed the point that the only description we have of Jesus in Scripture is Isaiah 53, verse 2, which prophetically says the appearance of Messiah would be ordinary, like an average person. Now, when I was young, I used to watch the weekly television show Superman, and each week the announcer would describe Superman's other identity as Clark Kent, the mild-mannered reporter for the Daily Planet newspaper. But a better comparison for Jesus would not be Superman, but would be Samson in the Book of Judges, who looked just like an average person until the Spirit of God, as the Scripture says, rushed in upon him, and he was able to perform supernatural feats of strength. The point is, yes, Jesus had to be fit to be a tecton, but for 30 years, he continued to live a relatively uneventful life from what we know while he remained faithful to his earthly father, faithful to his father in heaven, 
and the miracles he would perform later were always within the plan set forth by the Father in order that others would pass it on and proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, which is our central idea today. If you're taking notes, again, Roman numeral 2, the long silence. As I mentioned, after the events at age 12 until about 30, those are the years in the life of Jesus of silence in Scripture. I mean, let's be scriptural about this. I mean, a lot of people like to make it up and conjecture, but the rather unexciting reality of those missing years, in all probability, is that Jesus grew up, memorized Scripture, was trained as a tecton by Joseph, and that was it. He worked with stone and wood and helped build structures around his hometown of Nazareth for a living. And the fact is that for most of his earthly existence, Jesus lived a life in which not much happened. But that should be an encouragement to many of us. If we find ourselves in periods of life in which things are not progressing as quickly as we would like, and yet God is still sovereign as the master of events and the master of non-events. Well, one thing we can say for certain is Jesus did not waste his time through those silent years. We can be sure he carefully observed everything as he was growing up. Now let's go to the baptizer. All the Gospels link, this is Roman numeral 3, all the Gospels link the beginning of Jesus' ministry with that of the one who's been called the Baptist. Now, just to be clear, people who are members of the Baptist denomination know that John was not a Baptist in the way we define the word. Different denominations would not come along for many centuries, but if there had been denominations at the time, John certainly would have been the founder of the First Baptist Church. <laughs> That's a little Bible joke, not a big laughing joke, but one that might have been. You got a laugh out of me, so there you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. May, maybe a quiet smile, yeah. I mean, or, or perhaps not. Yeah. But we do know John had such an impact on the nation of Israel that many people wondered if he was the Messiah. Now we move to Roman numeral 3a, John's message. The job description of a prophet in Scripture is not so much about someone who foretells the future as it is someone who foretells the present. In other words, a prophet reminds God's people of their commitment to him right now. In spite of the fact that John came from an esteemed priestly family, the way he dressed marked him as one of the severest of prophets. I mean, the fact that he lived on a diet of bugs and honey, which was evidently common among nomadic people, and wore clothes that made from camel's hair not only, well, it not only confirmed the fact that he would never be considered a fashion plate, but it was also a visual statement against any kind of self-indulgence that he might have. In other words, he followed in the same tradition as one of the most ascetic prophets, Elijah, who also had worn the distinctive vintage desert wear described in 2 Kings 1 verse 8. Furthermore, since Elijah never technically died but was taken up into heaven by a Texas-sized tornado, who knows what people thought that maybe this bug-eating prophet could possibly be Elijah returning for a second act after a long intermission. And you can check out 2 Kings 2.11. So John caused a sensation bordering on hysteria in the countryside with his thundering and merciless denomination de- de- denunciations of the empty religious lifestyles of his own people who figured, hey, everything's okay. I mean, God made a covenant with us centuries ago, so we're good. Doesn't really matter what we do, does it? 
Well, John demands that they have a right relationship with God and others, and it all comes down to one word, repent. Now, the Greek word for repent is metanoia, which means to turn from the way you're going and to go another way. Now, as for his identity, which everyone was curious about, John is absolutely clear about who he is and who he's not. So when his listeners and members of the media, like the Galilean Gazette, who interviewed him, you just know they did, John gives a simple bullet point so he'll not be misquoted. He tells them, I am three things, and I'm not three things. First, I'm not the Messiah. Two, not Elijah. Three, not the prophet. But here's what I am. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Second, I am one who baptizes with water those who desire to turn from their sins. And three, I am unworthy to untie the sandals of the Savior who's about to arrive. Here's the point. John could clearly articulate who he was and what he believed. So the question for us is, if someone wants to know what you are really about, not about your job or your interest or your family relations or favorite teams, but what you are really about in your essence, could you clearly articulate what you believe? If you were to respond, well, I go to church. That does not mean much to a lot of people because we all know there are many unscrupulous people living in the pews on Sunday morning. Or if you were to respond, I'm a Christian, that's also a confusing message because it can be an easy deflection to keep someone from asking what that really means to you. And furthermore, many people equate the word Christian with the word hypocrite. But if you answer that that person by saying, I am a follower of Jesus, well, then you have changed the conversation to something quite different. They may not even know how to respond, but you've now stepped out and really made a statement. You have taken this seemingly pedestrian conversation into deeper waters and declared what you honestly believe, and not by using religious cliches, which do not express who you are. And if the time is right, you are ready to pass along that good news of Jesus as a son of God. And, Bill, that brings us to Roman numeral 3B. I think this is probably a good time to take a short break. My guest is Dr. Greg Heddington. We're back in the Book of John and loving it. We'll take a short break and be right back. So glad to be having Dr. Greg Heddington on the program today. We're studying the book of John. We're in chapter one, loving it. Greg, let's pick up where we left off. All right, uh, Roman numeral 3b. Let me give one feature of John's ministry. And uh, this feature is the urgent need to repent because God's calling to his people. He's calling to his repent. John invoked the language of the prophet Isaiah as he announces the imminent arrival of God's kingdom. So his people must repent now. And someone's about to arrive who's greater than he, and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit with fire. And it's not John. Now, a few years later, when John is imprisoned by Herod and about to be executed, he has the terrifying thought that perhaps his life has been wasted because perhaps Jesus is not the Messiah that he'd seemed to be. Now, why would John think that? Because John's disciples are bringing him daily reports about what Jesus is doing, and John is crushed. Why? Because John's hope was that the Messiah would bring about two distinct results in this new kingdom. First, that the imminent judgment of God would fall like an axe on evildoers. And second, that the oppressive Romans would be overthrown. But neither has happened. So John is brokenhearted in prison. 
and he sends his own disciples the words to ask Jesus, are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? Now, Jesus does not answer John's question directly, but sends this message to John. It's a fascinating exchange. You'll have to look at it in Luke 7, verse 18. Jesus quotes from different prophecies of what the Old Testament prophets had promised that Messiah would accomplish. And Jesus says, you go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, uh, yeah, cleansed. the, the deaf hear, the, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, Jesus is telling John that he, Jesus, is doing exactly what the Old Testament prophets had said Messiah would do. And he'll do more than John could possibly have imagined on an eternal scale. And if John had lived a bit longer, he would have seen God's judgments fall like an axe on the wayward Jews when 70 A.D. the Jewish temple and Jerusalem would be demolished by the Romans. Now, what does this all mean to us? This lesson is, is, talks about the greatest needs, really the greatest needs we, we have of all people have ever had. First, we have a tremendous need for forgiveness. Now, for some people, it's an unconscious sense, but for many, it's an urgent desire. Most people know they would need to be washed clean somehow of the ugly and sometimes debilitating sins of their past and the present sins that shackle us with guilt and shame, which can be absolutely crippling. Now, we may jump into activities to distract us from that gnawing feeling that we're not quite well, but the only remedy that will satisfy is the forgiveness of Christ. We see atrocities committed all over the world by people who are unable to forgive themselves. They hate themselves, and they take the hate out on other people. And we know that hurt people hurt others. We only experience relief from sin when we repent, ask for forgiveness, and then God forgives us. That forgiveness does not minimize sin. Rather, it magnifies the grace of God. Let me say that again. That forgiveness from the Lord does not minimize sin. It magnifies the grace of God. That grace was not cheap. It cost Jesus' life so that now we can pass it on because Jesus is the Son of God. You know, there was a commercial a while back talking, uh, it was about Las Vegas, and it said, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and they're trying to draw people to Vegas. Well, um, that is one of the fantasies that the devil would have us believe, because we cannot escape the consequences of our actions. As one maxim expresses it, wherever you go, there you are. Hmm. And the church has a better response to that commercial, which is, what happens in Vegas can be forgiven here if there is repentance of sin. I mean, simply knowing what's the right thing to do means nothing unless we do what is right. Because we'll never be sinless, but we will sin less the closer we follow Christ. And to be a moral person, to act differently than others and try to uh, have control over our behavior is good, but it's not ultimately the best. We're designed to have a relationship with the Lord. Let me tell this story. It's, it's kind of a closing story. One day my wife and I, um, well, not just one day, we've been going to a reflexologist for, for their many years and she's 80 years old she's been practicing for 80 for 50 years and she's 80 so one day carrie said to her virginia over the years you've worked on thousands of people what is the most common problem that people come in with to see you carrie assumed it would be neck back or knee pain but virginia replied oh that's easy the most problem the, the biggest problem people come in to see me with is not forgiving themselves, which causes their physical ailments. Mm. So what are the two greatest needs? 
Number one, the need to be forgiven. And secondly, simply the need to have a relationship with Jesus. The mystery of the ages has always been the question, what can wash away my sin? And that question has now been answered. In fact, as the hymn goes, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And friends, there is nothing that we've ever done that Jesus has not paid for on the cross. So bring your regrets, bring your mistakes, bring your past and present sins, and ask the Lord, Lord, please forgive me. And then, friends, we leave our sins at the foot of the cross because we are forgiven. We have been cleansed. And the last verse I want to share is 1 John 1, 9, which says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So now... Friends, go in peace to love and to serve the Lord as you pass on the good news that Jesus is the Son of God. Greg, fantastic teaching. I absolutely am riveted, and I can't wait to go back and hear it even a second time. Uh, There is so much there, and the powerful message of repentance and leaving your sins at the foot of the cross, because uh, that's not what everybody does. Amen. They walk away still feeling shame and guilt, don't they? Absolutely, just like Virginia said, and it's caused all kinds of physical problems as well as spiritual. Yeah, talk. I mean, you talk about the mind-body connection. I mean, there's a lot of baggage you're carrying around, and it's eating you up inside and out. And, yeah, it probably causes uh, pain and all kinds of other issues. No doubt. No yeah. Doubt. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, as always, great. Thank you for taking us on this journey through the Book of John. I'm looking forward to our, our next uh, time of teaching. I think it'll be in a couple of weeks, so... Blessings to you, and thanks for being on the show today. Thanks so much, Bill. Blessings to you. Yep. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest. We're going to take a little break when we come back. Brian Lauer is going to be my guest. He's going to talk about creation science. That's all up next.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. All right, we are back. Awfully glad to uh, bring uh, Brian Lauer onto the show. He is going to talk to us today a little bit about his work uh talking on creation, which he does all over the country. And uh, evolution is being taught in the schools as pretty much the dogma. So it turns out that when kids leave school, they're anywhere from 60 to 90 percent pretty much stop going to church. So it's important to to be uh, giving a biblical understanding. uh, And we're going to do that today with Brian. He's going to be speaking at an upcoming uh, Zoom event uh, sponsored right here at the University of Northwestern called Science Uprising. Uh, powerful links versus missing links. That's going to be the topic, and Brian is with us uh, today. Brian, welcome. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Uh, so, you know, big topic. You're just the guy to handle it, though. Right, right. <laughs> and it's foundation. Yeah, it's foundational for everything we do. Either God's Word is true or it's not. Yeah, God, yes, God's yeah. Word is true. So right. let's let's talk, talk about just what uh, kids are being taught right now in schools. Well, they're being taught in the history class. They're being taught we're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Hopefully they're still learning that. I hope so. And so there is a God. But in the science class, there's no God. They can only use natural processes or natural events, natural forces to explain natural processes, which that the definition excludes God. And so I've talked to kids that have gone to, you know, private schools where they teach evolution, <laughs> and yet, uh, so which one's true? And they say, well, it depends on which class I'm in. And they teach, and so it's very confusing for the kids, whereas I try and help them see both sides of the story, that God's Word is true, and that they, it's not just for Sunday, it's, it's for every day, and especially science. So do kids feel like they have any room for disagreement in schools, or do they feel like this is what I'm being taught, and just you better... Quiet down and listen up. Well, they, well it's, it's tough. It's difficult. Um, and some of them don't even know to question it because from, you know, kindergarten on, kindergarten on up, they're being taught millions of years for dinosaurs. And so they just accept that. I was talking to a woman one time, and she said her, her daughter was going through confirmation. And she asked the leader about um, dinosaurs. And I thought, oh, this will be interesting. <laughs> what did he say? And she said, I don't remember, but whatever he said, it didn't make her happy. It's pretty much just believe it because I said so, which is a horrible answer. You know, kids have questions. They need good answers. And so her daughter concluded that either Adam and Eve are false or dinosaurs are false. And how can dinosaurs be false? You find see their bones all over the place in the museums. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the woman and I said, your daughter's real close to kicking the Bible out of her life for the rest of her life. And it's going to be a heartache for you and for her. And I told her that Adam and Eve are true, and dinosaurs are true. The thing that's false is millions of years. And then I was able to plug her into one of my talks that I have on, on YouTube. So hopefully that's, that uh, solidifies their faith in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Brian, would you say that a majority of, of scientists and teachers who uh, teach evolution uh, are agnostic or atheists? It, it depends. Yeah, the majority of them are evolutionists, and they could be atheists. And But there are. I mean, you'll hear all the scientists believe in evolution, and that's not true. You can go into descentfromdarwin.org mm-hmm. and see hundred, hundreds of Ph.D. scientists that disagree with evolution. And, you know, one of the reasons why there's so many, because if you question it, you could lose your job. Wow. 
you, you can search Mark Armitage. He, he was a taught at California State Northfield or something like that. And he found these, uh, uh, t they found bone cells in a T-Rex horn, or in a Triceratops horn. And he got it published in a peer-reviewed journal. And all he said, hey, I found a bone cell in a tri Triceratops horn. And he didn't make any conclusions, any judgments. He just said, I found it. When he submitted it, he got a call that said, you realize this is controversial? He says, yeah, I realize that, because bone cells don't last millions of years. And he got it published, and instead of getting a job and a raise and all that stuff, he got fired. Hmm. And he sued him for wrongful termination, and he won, but yet he's not teaching there. So who really won? Yeah, good point. Right. Yeah, so Darwin's goal was, was never to disprove God's existence, was it? Well, I don't know about that. Okay. <laughs> You think it? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I'm just asking. Yeah, um, you know, it's he. When his daughter died, he got really mad at okay. God, and you know, how could a loving God do this? And nobody told him, hey, it's not the God. It's, it's just the sin that came into the world with with Adam's rebellion, and so he was kind of messed up theologically, and he and he he put a lot of his he there was there was a lot of back when Charles Lyell he wrote that uh, principles of geography geology. Mm -hmm where it's millions of years for all these layers, right? So that's, there's deep time for all those layers. And then Darwin used that for deep time for the evolution of life. And I think it was Lyle that said that he, tried, he was trying to separate the people from, the, from Moses, or the science from Moses. They didn't like looking at those layers as a flood. He wanted them to look at it as slow, gradual, uniformitarian processes. And it doesn't make sense because, you know, those layers have fossils in them. And the only way a fossil forms is if it gets buried rapidly. You know, that deer on the side of the road isn't going to turn into a fossil. It's going to decompose and it's going to, it's going to get scavenged. So to form a fossil, it has to be buried rapidly. Therefore, any layer with a fossil was laid down rapidly. And our kids are not getting that perspective. All right, Brian, what, uh, what does the Bible say about uh, creation versus evolution? Well, the Bible says in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, mm -hmm. okay? and and uh, and uh, and then in, in Exodus twenty eleven it says, "For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day and hallowed it." So he, God made everything in six days, and people will ask me, "Well, how old do you think the earth is?" And I say, "I just I just agree with Jesus," and I show them Mark ten six where it says, "For from the beginning of the creation God made them male and female." The beginning, you know, six days in, there's Adam and Eve, male and female. But if you believe in any sort of form of evolution, male and female, or Adam and Eve got here way later. So I just agree with, I, I agree with Jesus. It's at the beginning of creation, not at the end. So um, as evolution is presented today, um, when will this get to a point where there's going to be more voices coming in, speaking of creation the way you do, and trying to add balance to the minds of a lot of young people. When we start making accurate predictions, and we have been, there's a theory called the hydroplate theory. It explains 25 major features on Earth and in the solar system, plus it makes accurate predictions, astounding predictions, like what we'd find in a comet or an asteroid, astounding. Mm -hmm. And yet the creationists have... have kind of ignored it, just kind of kicked it in the corner, and they don't even talk about it. I think once we get that theory into the limelight, and it's starting to come, 
is starting to come. I saw a newsletter from Creation Research, Creation Matters this summer where it had the three flood models from a creationist perspective, and they put the hydroplate theory in there, and they gave them a fair write-up. And I'm thinking the censorship is starting to crack. And so I think once we start making accurate predictions, and we are, we, we are, it's just it's not being publicized. Because if we would have been banging this theory for the last 40 years, we'd have a whole lot of scientific clout. And that's where I think as creationists, we've dropped the ball. And so I think I'd like people to start looking in that more. And I had a geologist take a look at it, a professor at uh, St. Cloud State University, and looked at this theory. It's, a, it's in a book, you know, a 200-page book, because it explains so much. And she said, you know, the science works if the assumption is true. And she just, but she just didn't agree with the assumption. But everything after that works, like hand and glove, and it explains so many things. I gave a talk. It's up on my YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Had, had an opportunity to speak to the Rotary Club a couple months ago, and that's what I talked about at 15 minutes. And that's up on my uh, YouTube channel. I called it Solidify Your Faith. And uh, so if people want a quick overview of it, yeah. it's way more in-depth. Yeah, I'd love for you to say a little bit more about that, because I don't know if I'm understanding it all that well. Okay, the hydroplate theory, the assumption, which is biblical, the assumption is half of the water in the ocean was inside the earth, okay? It's so, so just a, a layer of water underneath the, underneath the crust of the earth. So just think of the apple as, apple, or the world as an apple. The, the skin is 60 miles thick, made of granite, and then there's a layer of water underneath, about a mile thick, and then underneath that is basalt. And the granite and the basalt are touching, okay? And uh, the moon tugs on the earth, and it tugs on the crust, too. But back then, the crust wasn't broken into pieces. So the crust would expand and contract and expand and contract and generate heat. The heat had to go somewhere, so it went into the water. And the water got hotter and hotter and hotter. It wanted to boil, but it couldn't. And it turned into supercritical water at 705 degrees and 3,200 PSI. And it dissolves things like crazy. It starts to dissolve the granite above and the basalt below and starts making stuff like limestone and, and uh, silica and salts, and it's just forming underneath there, dissolving. And so the crust is getting weaker and weaker because it's dissolving, and it's getting hotter and hotter, and it's getting more and more pressure. And eventually something's got to give. And the Bible tells us what happened and when in Genesis uh, 7 uh, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, in the same day where the phones of the great deep broken up. That's when the crust of the earth cracked. And when it cracked, it's, it, it just erupted. It, it went in two directions at three miles per second and went around the globe in, in uh, two hours. Okay, and the water shot up with tremendous force. That's how it can rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And it, uh, people say, well, if that would have happened, what did it leave left a mark? And it says, yes, it did. It was, it's the mid-oceanic ridge. There's a mountain range at the bottom of the oceans, 46,000 miles long, and that's where it erupted out of there. And so now you got the water shooting up like crazy, and now you got two cliffs 60 miles thick. And they can't, a cliff on Earth can only be five miles high before it starts to crush the Earth, crush what's underneath it. So you got this two 60-mile cliffs crumbling into this supersonic uh, flow of water, and that's how you get the sedimentary rock all over the continents. Nobody really has a good answer for that. And so the, 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 the cliffs are getting wider and wider and wider from each other. And eventually there's nothing pushing down on the, on the mantle of the earth. And so the mantle bulges. That's the mid-oceanic ridge. 
and as it bulges, it puts the, pushes the continent pulls puts the continents up higher. So they start to slide, like a train track. If you lift up one track, it starts to slide, and so now the continents are flowing friction free on water. You got Europe and Africa sliding to the east. You got North America and South America sliding to the west, and they keep sliding till they hit resistance, and then they buckle. That forms the mountains. That's why the mountains are pretty much parallel to the Mid Oceanic Ridge. Okay, and then so if uh, <clears throat> and so the mountains, that's a big mountain, high big mass on a small base that sinks in. Well, if something sinks in, something's got to rise up. That's where the plateaus form. So you got plateaus by all those mountains. Okay, and similarly, that Mid Oceanic Ridge is rising up. Well, if something rises up, something has to sink in. What's sunk in? The Pacific Ocean. That ring of fire, it's sunk in, and there's 40,000 volcanoes at the bottom of that ocean. That's very different than the rest of the oceans. And so now the oceans got deeper, and now the water starts flowing off the continents, cutting the valleys. You know, they got sub, sub, uh, submarine canyons at, on the continental shelves that can't form today. That had to be out of the water when the water, out of the ocean when the water was gushing off to cut those canyons. And they got a big canyon in uh, Greenland. They've got uh, lakes in Antarctica, and they can't explain it. And then what happened, you know, the, in the, the canyon in Greenland under two kilometers of ice, it, it doesn't make sense with the, how big it is. How do you get a canyon that big with such a little space? Well, it, the water flowed off after the flood, cut the canyon, and then the ice age formed. And the evolutionists have a hard time with the ice age. You know, once that thing starts, it should just keep going. And to have an ice age, you need warmer winters and cooler summers. You need warmer winters because you need moisture in the air. If it's too cold, you don't get much moisture in the air. Okay, warmer winters, so more precipitation, but yet you need cooler summers. The snow can't melt because if it melts, you don't get an ice age. You get an ice age when it snows more than it melts year after year after year after year. So how do you get warmer winters? Well, the oceans were warmer after the flood. How do you get cooler summers? That's because the continents were higher, so they're cooler, plus the, there's more volcanic activity, so there's more aerosols in the atmosphere, so you get less heat from the earth. Okay, so four, four or five hundred years of it snowing more than it melts, you got ice everywhere, mm -hmm. except for parts of Alaska and Siberia, which is a real brain scratcher for an evolutionist. <laughs> how do you get, how do you get uh, <laughs> glaciers everywhere except where, you know, they got permafrost today. How come they want to have an, a glacier in the ice age? Well, it's because they were close to the coast, and it was lower. It came down as rain, so it just ran up. It didn't freeze. Mm -hmm. Okay, and they find stuff. They find, they find in Antarctica, they find evidence that uh, alligators, dinosaurs, and palm trees live down there. You know, if it's warmer, I can see the animals, but a palm tree growing where it's darks four months of the year? And then in the Arctic Circle, they find stuff like shrews <laughs> and badgers, stuff that live in the ground. That's not going to live in permafrost. Plus, they found mammoths by the millions. They estimate millions of them up there, and they found one of them that was in the standing position. How in the world do you get a frozen mammoth in the standing position, and he still has identifiable food in his stomach? I mean, when you hunt a deer, I mean, you're a deer hunter, Bill, at all? I'm not. Okay. I guess the first thing you do is you gut it so it doesn't rot the meat, mm -hmm. it, but because it keeps on deteriorating in there. But this mammoth, <laughs> it was frozen. It had to be flash frozen. Okay, and so how does that happen? And also, mammoths are not, they don't live in the tundra. They eat too much, they drink too much. There's no way, or they don't live in the Arctic. They're a temperate animal. They mm -hmm. need a lot of food, a lot of water. Okay, so how do, how do you freeze something that fast, and then how come it doesn't thaw out? Well, you, you freeze it that fast with the big hail. 
the water was shooting up with such force that some of us some of it broke out of the atmosphere, got super cold in outer space, and came crashing down. Hmm. And and also in uh, when limestone is formed, it, it uh, gives off CO2, and so carbon dioxide frozen is uh, dry ice. So you got this muddy hail coming down on the mammoths and burying them. Okay, so that's how it froze. How come it didn't thaw out? That brings us to the big roll. That's like uh, the the northern mountains and the southern mountains pretty much cancel out, you know, except for the Himalayans. There's mm-hmm. nothing in the south to cancel the Himalayans. So it's like if you drop a, uh, a piece of uh, some glue on a top, that glue is going to try and go to the outside, and it's going to bring the top with it. That's what the Himalayans did. And you can find the Himalayans by looking in the ocean. There's a 90 east ridge that's 3,000 miles long, pointing almost vertical straight north, just straight as can be, pointing at the Himalayans. That's because there's a bulge on the equator, and when the Himalayans shifted the whole earth, that bulge ripped. And so the Himalayans were probably 3,000 miles farther north. And so something in the north was brought down to the south. That means something in the south was brought up north. So Mammothville, where all this uh, mammoths were with all the food and water in a temperate environment, got brought up to Mammoth Chill, where they never thawed out. Okay, Brian. Yeah, I'm going to need yeah. to take a break, and I'm still, st- I'm still, st- I'm still stuck on the Mid Oceana Ridge. And to think I was going to build a condo on that ridge, I'm glad I got talked out of it. All right, Brian Lowers, my guest, we're talking about uh, creation science. We'll take a short break. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. During the break, I had to take several deep breaths, uh, only because my guest, Brian Lauer, is talking about uh, so many interesting things relative to creation science. And, you know, a lot of this has been swept under the rug, Brian, because, you know, I would have a, I would guess that a lot of listeners are, are, under, are hearing this information maybe for the first time. Yeah, that's true. That's true. The major, uh, major creation places, they don't, they don't, they, they've got their catastrophic plate tectonics theory. And so that's what they'll promote. And the evolutionists have their plate tectonics theory, and that's what they'll promote. And so this is the one that's just kind of the, the red-headed stepchild that everybody kicks to the side. Yeah. And it's like Bob Enyard says, sometimes uh, uh, science evolves, science advances one funeral at a time. As people get, you know, because some people have, you know, power and prestige and money and a certain way of thinking, and they don't want to give that up. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes, and the, the, the guy who developed this is Dr. Walt Brown. And Army Ranger, Ph.D. from MIT, brilliant guy. I think he's going to get a lot more credit after he's dead than when he's alive, which is a shame. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I'm trying to, you know, you, and you can see this theory at hpt.rsr.org, hydroplatetheory.realscienceradio.org, and it's a flip book. You can just go through it and read it for yourself. It's phenomenal. And this this is uh, un- uncovering a lot of, uh, things that we can now better understand. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Because, you know, it's a neat theory, but if what what good is it? And if it can make accurate predictions. Right. So, so Walt Brown predicted that not only was some of this stuff shooting out with such force that it escaped our atmosphere, some of it escaped our gravitational pull and just kept on going. So now you got these big rocks out there and, and, and that's going to suck together all the water and, and dry ice and stuff. So now you got these things called uh, dirty snowballs flying out there. And what's been described as a dirty snowball? How about a comet? 
and he predicts he thinks comets came from the Earth. And he says, when we find out what's in a comet, we're going to find stuff from the Earth, like olivine. And he was right. They did the Stardust mission, and they were astounded at what they found, because some of that stuff can only make be formed in liquid water. And the only place there's liquid water in the solar system is on Earth. And so, on the surface anyway. And then uh, he also predicted that asteroids would be flying rock piles made of rounded boulders. And they found rounded boulders in comet P67 or something like that. How do you get rounded boulders in space? Because if they collide into each other, they're going to have sharp edges. The only way you get rounded boulders is if it's flowing through a fast flow of water before it gets shot into outer space. And you say, well, if that's the case, wouldn't it mark up the moon? And it did. The near side of the moon is pounded. It's a lot different than the far side. There's more moon quakes and lava flows on the near side than the far side, which is very unusual. You would think it would be the other way around since the Earth protects the, Earth, the moon's surface. We only see one side of the moon. And so it's a fascinating theory. I encourage people. Um, Brian Nickel, he does a real good job on YouTube animating what I'm trying to explain poorly. But he does a really good job. And this theory explains Grand Canyon, it explains the origin of uh, limestone, it explains radioactivity. I mean, you could, I do three or four different talks just on this theory alone, and they're all probably an hour long. But, uh, yeah, it's very eye-opening. And, again, making accurate predictions. Well, what about uh, maybe would you talk a little bit about the Grand Canyon? Well, the Grand Canyon, you go out there, it's supposed to be a little bit of water over a lot of time, and it's simply not the case because that river flows into that canyon a mile below the ridge. It's not going to flow uphill. What had to happen was a lot of water had to flow through there to cut that canyon. And when you go out there, just think of bulging and cracking, just like the mid-oceanic ridge bulged and then it cracked, or it bulged. That's what happened with the... They had these, these huge lakes, Great Lakes, a couple Grand Lakes, Grand Lake and Hopi Lake up on the Colorado Plateau. And they're about the size of Lake Superior or Lake Michigan. There's a lot of water up there. And when they went, when one lake breached, it started flowing and it just made that huge funnel. If you look and on the map, you see this huge funnel-shaped thing. That's when all that water was coming out. And uh, and so then it, it uh, took off all that sediment. They figure that oh, what was it? 2,000 cubic miles of sediment had to be removed before the Grand Canyon gets formed. And so all that water is scraping off all that sediment until it gets down to the coconut limestone, which is too hard. And it just goes like that. And then you get less weight, so then that limestone cracks. So then the water flows through the crack. That's how you get Marble Canyon. And that flows down, and it undercuts Hopi Lake. And Hopi Lake, so now you've got this waterfall probably 100 times bigger than Niagara Fall or with the flow of it and coming down. And now it's cutting. Now it's getting off all the rest of that stuff. And then the Kayababa. It, the, where the Grand Canyon is, that's where the Kayabab limestone cracked, and then the water flowed underneath there. And that flowed so deep that it was below the water table. So the water, the sub, the water, um, the water table starts flowing into this crack. That's how you get side canyons, just as deep as Grand Canyon, but no source of water. And so it's bulging and cracking, and that's how it goes. And then it finally, there's that inner gorge, which is unusual. Again, the canyon cut down, and then there was less weight, and then it cracked and then the water went through the bottom. And we see the same thing at Mount St. Helens. They call it the mini Grand Canyon. It's 1,000 feet wide, 140 feet tall. It looks real similar to Grand Canyon, same features. It was cut in nine hours in a, in, a, in, a, in a mud flow. So those big canyons with little rivers are a sign of a catastrophic event, not a sign of a lot of time. So that's the Grand Canyon in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. And hasn't every society throughout the world 
in their records uh, have a record of a world flood? Yes, yes, yes. And they got, you know, it's, it's, they'll say, well, the, the Bible got our record from the, oh, uh, what was that? From another legend. I forget what the name of it was, but that one had a cubed arc. That's not seaworthy. Mm-hmm. The Bible has an arc that's one, ratios are one to six, and that's what the barges are made out of today. And so, yeah, there's, Chinese has one, Hawaii has one, they're all over. But yeah, a worldwide, those legends have an element of truth to them. And plus, there's also um, legends of dinosaurs all over the world, also, except they weren't called dinosaurs, they were called dragons. And that bothered Carl Sagan so much that he wrote a book called uh, Dragons of Eden, trying to explain how people separated by time and distance could have the same description of these animals that supposedly went extinct you know, 67 million years ago mm-hmm. that man never saw. So there's really strong evidence for uh, man seeing dinosaurs. And I gave a creation apologetic seminar last week in Pace, Florida, and you can see these talks on their Facebook page. It's uh, gracebaptistpace.org. You can see, I gave a talk on the hydroplate. I gave a talk on dinosaurs. Then I also gave a battle royale, 15-round yeah. bout, bout between creation and evolution. And you can see some of the lies that have been used to prop up evolution. Yeah. Evolution is not true. Do you ever sleep? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> I thought you just maybe stood up and stayed up and learned all the time. Thank you for coming on the show. There's uh, an event oh, coming up. My pleasure. Brian will be speaking on uh, called Science Uprising. You can go over to uh, um, the University of Northwestern website and find more information about it there. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.